0: Welcome to the podcast, Mike. So, if you could first of all explain your role at R3, and then a bit about what R3 does, that would be great.
1: Fantastic, Shani, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to join and talk more about myself and what R3 is doing in the uh, capital market space. So, I'm Mike Wilkins. I am the head of industry solutions for R3. I joined here at the beginning of 2022. In my role, I am in charge of the kind of messaging and strategy about our range of offerings, including our Corda distributed ledger technology platform, as well as Conclave, which is our confidential computing platform, and bringing those products to market and making sure that we, you know, we kind of stay on the uh, the leading edge of the conversation around both trust technology as well as private computing. So I've got a 20 plus years background of experience in capital markets technology. Most of that time was spent on the enterprise side. I did eight years at Fidesa, working for them in Chicago, London, and New York. I also worked for SunGuard. FIS and a couple of other software providers in the space as well. Prior to joining R three, I spent a couple of years at a startup in the wealth management space, where I kind of developed a, a real taste for the so called startup life, as well as you know continuing my, my keen interest in financial technology. So I really wanted to kind of merge those two th- two worlds of that startup mentality combined with that fintech experience, and R three enabled me to do that.
0: Fantastic. And you mentioned Corda and Conclave there, so maybe you could just very quickly explain kind of what they are and the role of R3 in enterprise blockchain?
1: Sure thing. So R3 have two main offerings that we uh, provide to the marketplace. We have Corda, which is our private permissioned distributed ledger technology platform. And we also have Conclave, which is our recently introduced confidential computing technology, which enables uh, data sharing across um, untrusted parties. We were founded in 2014 as a consortium backed by a lot of large global banks and then since then, we've evolved from our roots in banking to a broader focus on capital markets with growing presence of, across both value, both banks, as well as financial market infrastructure providers, independent software vendors, systems integrators. We have a, a pretty broad swath of, of clients that we serve.
0: Okay. Fantastic. So maybe you could just give a quick overview of kind of how blockchain is being used right now in capital markets.
1: So. Looking at blockchain as a whole and capital markets, it's moved from kind of a, a nice-to-have that was being leveraged in um, innovation labs to a must-have is something that we've seen increasingly going into production. As more and more blockchain products move out of the innovation center and into the mainstream, we're really starting to see a lot of use cases crystallized where uh, we feel like what we've built has had, a, has had an impact. If You look at the growth of public and private digital assets like central bank digital currencies, digital bonds, fiat-backed stablecoins and network tokens. And then you look at the more kind of uh, you know, emerging world of Web3 as far as NFTs and some of the other digital assets that come out of the metaverse. There's kind of two sides to the conversation. but We see ourselves really coming down very much on that regulated side and focusing on helping the uh, capital markets participants to, uh, to issue and manage digital assets and a, uh, in a more effective um, fashion. But you kind of look beyond that, and you also look that across the rest of the ecosystem, you're seeing a really big growth in uh, Ethereum-based projects. that have kind of, kind of taken the lead, organizations like Finality, Sony, and uh, JP Morgan Onyx. The thing that all of these projects kind of have in mind is a real theme of efficiency. So as kind of hand-in-hand going with that efficiency. As these trends continue to emerge, users want to be able to transact across those different mediums in just an efficient a manner as they can transact within those mediums themselves. So it's just a desire for this, this openness for the ecosystem that's driving this interest in interoperability.
0: Sure. So you mentioned interoperability there, which is something I wanted to discuss with you. So kind of, would you say efficiency is kind of the biggest benefit of interoperability
1: or are there I think other think things as well? Of, I think it's that, that frictionless movement to be able to... Uh, to switch between different areas of the ecosystem or between different ecosystems, I should say. But during that whole time, you have control. You have a, one of the terms that we've been using here a lot is the digital sovereignty. Regardless of where your assets sit, you still have control over those assets and you have the full view of where those assets may be as they move through, through different ecosystems. Comparison that sort of comes to mind for me as I think about, you know, as a, as an investor looking at my, my 401k. Based on market conditions, being able to or being wanting to to reallocate from one fund or one allocation to another, or transfer funds from a, from one wealth management provider to another, again going back to the earlier theme, I just kind of want that frictionless movement, and that really plays up on on a macro level when you look at at that same theme going across DLT ecosystems. Just that ability to uh, to be able to move quickly and efficiently with uh, minimal friction.
0: Sure, I get. I was thinking about it when I was thinking about it. I was thinking about when you message someone on your mobile phone, and you just want them to get it regardless of what network they're using, so is that is that the right, the right concept? Uh,
1: I, I think that's a that's a good comparison as well, Shannon. I think that it really kind of um it sort of makes that uh, that, that platform a bit of platform neutrality. I know that for example, you look at like um, you know WhatsApp now enables you, I believe, to message Facebook contacts and things like that. So Just thinking about that up uh, that bridge between messaging platforms, so to speak, that's been built. Sure.
0: And what are the current barriers to interoperability right now? Is it the actual technology, or is it something else?
1: I think it's um, it's kind of neither. I don't think it's technology. I don't think it's the the regulars. I think it's largely philosophical. I think that just sort of stems from the you know the origin of how all these ecosystems came to be. They all saw themselves as a as very unique as a as islands, and they use kind of used that that uniqueness of their ecosystem as part of their uh, their value props, but they've subsequently come come to realize to kind of uh, steal a bit of a cliche that uh, no platform is an island. When you look at the technology itself to build these different interoperability bridges, it's really not super complex. It's more just reaching that kind of philosophical decision, especially for an organization, you know, it's historically operated very much in a in a silo, in a, in a regulated space. It's not always an easy decision to make, but it's ultimately the, uh, the right decision for all parties involved. Right.
0: And then can you give examples of where R3... Is providing kind of solutions
1: for interoperability, and are we actually close to things being interoperable in the in the real world? I, I think we're very close. I think the uh, part of the beauty of that is that we've really kind of identified two different scenarios that we've already kind of pioneered the workflows for in a, you know with some of our clients in different areas. So first of all, is building asset bridges, so which is just sort of showing the capability of moving an asset from one ledger to another. For example, if you wanted to take a an asset and move it from Ethereum to Corda. If you want to move off of Corda onto Quorum, or obviously, you know, in in the, the perfect world, we'd love to see everybody moving from one Corda platform to another. Just being able to uh, to ensure that that asset moves seamlessly. We did this with a a, pro, a currency project called Jasper Ubin a couple of years ago. So we've kind of proved that we're that that ledger interoperability already exists across multiple ecosystems. The other area that we're exploring is uh, atomic swaps. So this is sort of your simultaneous exchange of in-ledger assets between two platforms where you are literally taking an asset from Ethereum and then swapping it immediately to another platform, in this case being Corda, We did this in a, It was another uh, cross-border project we engaged in about a year and a half ago called Project Jura. So in that case, we were working across three different central banks in Europe. So we've seen also in addition to us kind of doing this work on our own and having the uh, the experience with it, we're also seeing a lot of work across our ecosystem partners. There's companies that we uh, we work with, like Onera and Lab Five Seventy Seven, who have also gone and built their own uh, interoperability bridges.
0: Okay, great. And then maybe you could you kind of went over the two scenarios there, and maybe could you just kind of find the difference between the asset bridge
1: and the atomic swap? Absolutely. So with an asset bridge, you are taking an asset and just moving it from one ledger to another. With an atomic swap, you're actually exchanging the assets by tokenizing them, creating a smart contract, and then switching and then putting the smart contract across a bridge between two platforms.
0: Right. Okay. Got you there. So the asset bridge obviously is, I assume, is much simpler to do than the atomic swap.
1: The atomic swap is what really makes makes the good story, and I think that that's really going to become the forefront of a lot of conversations in the space. Right. Okay.
0: Are people actually using a kind of asset bridges at the moment?
1: They are. Uh, we will have a couple of clients live with it in the, uh, the coming months. We are doing some POC work around it now.
0: Okay. And then with the atomic swaps, do you think that that's a bit further away?
1: I think it's a bit further away, but I, as I said earlier, I think it's also going to be the uh, the real you know, use case that kind of dominates the conversation. This is something that you're seeing. A lot of kind of within ecosystems, but so obviously the natural extension is going to have it much more and more um, across ecosystems.
0: Okay, fantastic. And then some of the recent hacks that I've been reading about seem to have occurred on bridges between different blockchains. So kind of how do you ensure things are interoperable
1: but secure at the same time? So as going back to uh, kind of what I said at the, uh, the top of our conversation, I mean, Quota by nature is a, is, a, is a private permissioned distributed ledger platform. So nobody gets on or off it without you know pretty rigid set of, of permission and uh, security controls. And again, having so much of our DNA rooted in, um, in capital markets and banking where trust is so important, we kind of from day one built this permission by nature platform. So we're just going to ensure that the, uh, the on and off ramps going in and out of our platform will have that, that same degree of privacy involved mitigate the risk of hacks, which I know have been, um, they're making for really juicy press lately.
0: <laughs> and then is there any, I know you said it wasn't kind of regulation or technology that was stopping interoperability, but is there anything you think the regulators could do to help the
1: ecosystem become more interoperable? Sure. So thinking about that, it's something that, you know, regulators are always, you know, kind of part of the conversation and, and always part of the driving force. But I think at the end of the day, this is something that's going to be driven by the client and by the marketplace. I don't think that providers or market participants want to look like somebody who's super reactive to a government mandate. I think that what we would appreciate from the regulators, especially here in the U.S., we're continuing to have a little bit of this this back and forth between the, the SEC and the CFTC around how digital assets are going to be used and regulated. Once we, once we kind of have a much clearer picture of that, I think it's naturally going to flow down to the decisions that are going to be made around software design. So really the bottom line is don't tell us how to interoperate. Tell us how digital asset users should behave. We can you know, leverage that behavioral framework to build a, build a technology framework that's interoperable from there.
0: And, and do you think that framework needs to, like, is, are there certain things you can do before that
1: framework is in place? Or do you have to wait for that to come down from the regulators? I think that there is, a number of conversations that providers can have in the market that will enable us to at very least you know, kind of sketch out some possible uh, some, some possible use cases. So while they're obviously not going to be set in stone, I think you can certainly anticipate what these scenarios may look like based on other areas of the world or other areas where obviously regulation plays a part. And just from that, derive what the different potential outcomes can be so that you can have a, uh, a solution that's pretty close to ready once the, uh, the regulation is more, uh, more codified and handed down.
0: And and you mentioned how it's kind of down to the clients and the marketplace. So when you're talking to your clients or or do they kind of say to you, "Oh, we really want things to be more interoperable, and how can you help us?"
1: Absolutely. I think it's probably one of the most inevitable things that we're going to see in the space in the in the coming years when it comes to uh, digital asset markets. I, i'd say it's pretty close to a to one hundred percent. And again, leaning back on a another analogy, if you take a look at and this, I'm going to be dating myself a bit here. But if you take a look at the uh, the equity markets in the late '90s and early 2000s, where you had all these different ECNs that were operating on their own, and the you know bank broker or market participant would have a different uh, way that they would smart route to or that they would route to a particular destination. But then off the back of that, you started to see these, these smart order router capabilities coming, where you're able to have this this interconnection between different venues to find the uh, the best price. I think that it's kind of that same philosophy. So, if you take a look, you know, thinking to where we are now, it's kind of a similar model to what we saw with the uh, with the equity markets that I mentioned earlier, where we really have this these ecosystems that have historically sort of existed on their own and have recognized that you know, for the good of the industry and for the good of their entire client base, it's better off to have a much more uh, unified and uh, interconnected, interoperable approach.
0: And then, like in the equity markets, for instance, or financial markets in general, we have like fixed messaging. So, do you think? Things like that need to be built into
1: the think, as well. um, One of the beauties of doing a lot of the work that we do, you know, yep. one of the initial it cases with Ethereum, is a lot of that hard work has already been done as far as, a, as messaging standardization. I do think that, you know, potentially there could be room for a, a messaging standard across the, the, the entire industry. I mean, what that is remains to be seen. We, uh, we at our 3 do participate pretty actively in the other conversations that the FIX protocol league or... Fixed trading, as they're now known, we're uh, participating in the, the conversations through driving about making sure that uh, digital asset market participants have a have a voice in that conversation. Sure.
0: So, what do you think are the prospects for interoperability kind of becoming the norm in the ecosystem, and then kind of what's a roadmap for
1: get for getting there? I think it's pretty much one hundred percent. I think get, yeah, I do think that getting there is going to be you know a result of dialogue across. All these different ecosystems, you know, the the R3s of the world will have to go out and talk to, you know, continue our conversations with the the providers in the private space that we kind of work with, but also to a degree compete with. But we'll also have a number of conversations uh, in the public blockchain space as well, just making sure that uh, every voice is represented. Now, whether that's a working group driven by the Global Blockchain Business Council or one of those types of entities, or whether it's a conversation that, that we or another technology provider take on ourselves to start facilitating, it's definitely the way forward. Is that, we yeah, at the end of the day, all of us providers are hearing the same thing from our clients, so it's going to be natural for us to uh, to engage with each other as well as with the marketplace to uh, to shape out what interoperability is going to look like and what the standards may look like around that.
0: And I saw the news coming out today about R three uh, being the provider for Project Iron from the
1: DTCC. Yeah. Indeed, so, it's very uh, very timely that we're chatting today. It's pretty uh, <laughs> exciting to be able to uh, to share that news publicly.
0: So, do you think? Due to the set, like the, that's a kind of an infrastructure that's central to the capital markets in the US. So, do you think having kind of a standardised blockchain
1: behind that? Do you think that will help with the interoperability debate as well? Absolutely, I think that the, having a a name that big come out publicly say that they are. Uh, leveraging this, this new way of doing things to, uh, to streamline you know, trillions and trillions of dollars in, in equity trade settlement every day, I think is really, a, it's kind of a, a use case that speaks for itself. And I think that the, you know, judging from what I saw on Twitter today, it's definite that the uh, other parts of the industry are listening. So, and the, uh, you know, there's a number of people are having conversations about it. So it's a, it is a really exciting day for the technology. It's obviously a really exciting day for R3. And it's a really exciting day for DTCC talking about how a you know, an organization of, of that much scope you know, is as historically has acted as a sort of in the background as a utility is really coming, you know, publicly forward and saying that, you know, we have found this is the best way forward.
0: Sure. And then with digital assets being global as well, do you think kind of the interoperability kind of across borders, do you think there's any specific issues there? Do you think that would be kind of a long, a long road to achieve those standards?
1: I do think that might be a, a bit of a slower burn, but I mean, if you look at different uh, the philosophy around how all this works across different regions, you can definitely see that APAC and the Middle East are sort of leading the charge. I think that Europe and North America are a little bit kind of behind, but I think that any conversations that you have to have around shaping this these markets. Or digital assets are, by nature, borderless and global at the end of the day. So there's going to be that real need to make sure that all the different considerations from all these different uh, global parties are taken, taken into play.
0: And so going forward, kind of what do you continue to see as kind of R3's role in developing interoperability?
1: I think that we'll sort of be a, uh, a bit of prime mover in kind of the, you know, the private permission blockchain side. I think that this represents a little bit of a change in our philosophy. Historically, we were, uh, you know, we operated in a, you know, in a much more private fashion, but now we're almost kind of going to use a, a use a golf club analogy. We've kind of gone from um, from private to a semi private country club, and we're just making sure that you know we, we're welcoming the right parties into the fold to have them participate in you know, exchange between our clients and uh, and other participants in capital markets, whether it's public or private. And so, like in a couple
0: of years, do you see? kind of a much greater degree of inter- interoperability? I,
1: I definitely think so. I think that the conversations have really accelerated over the past uh, kind of year, year and a half, and then accelerated even more so just in the, uh, you know, five or six months that I've really been uh, privy to the conversation start three. So it's definitely something that's, uh, that's gaining momentum. And as we, you know, so often see in this space, things happen extremely fast.
0: Yeah, they do. And then I guess you mentioned it right at the beginning that kind of needed a change in philosophy. So do you think that has actually changed now and people are thinking more about not being separate
1: islands. I think they're coming around to it. I wouldn't say that everybody's all the way there, but I think the doubters are definitely, um, and the skeptics are definitely less doubtful and skeptical than they were. I just think that as this conversation continues, it's going to be kind of more and more at the uh, forefront of everybody's minds. It's going to have, you know, greater and greater mind share, And that too is just going to sort of uh, drive acceleration.
0: So, could you say, like, in five years' time,
1: where you'd like this to be? I'd love to see it as one you know, truly connected ecosystem, with the appropriate safety measures in place. But you know, in terms of being well regulated, in terms of being you know privacy considerate, and in terms of having um, but having kind of that that partic- that participation ability for every member of the public, no matter what their you know what asset they're particip- what asset they're holding, what ecosystem system they participate in, whether it's something that's completely governed or somewhat governed, just to give them that bridge to it to maintain that uh again using the term again that digital sovereignty that is so sacrosanct and important to them
0: fantastic. well, thank you, Mike. I think that's been like a great overview of yourself of our three, what you're trying to achieve, why interoperability is so important so Maybe, I mean, is there something, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to mention or kind of, do you have some final thoughts on
1: what you'd like to see happen? Sure. So I think that it's, a, I mean, first of all, Shani, thanks again for for having me on. I think this is probably the uh, most exciting period in technology I've seen in, in all my time in capital markets. I, again, to date myself a bit, I spent, I started my career on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade. And from there, I saw the evolution of trading as it went from trading pits to trading screens, and all of the all the business moved from from, from downstairs to upstairs, as we always said. And you kind of had that uh, that electronic trading revolution. I look at all the stuff that I've seen in, uh, in capital markets as it relates to uh, to blockchain and DLT. I think it's even more transformational than that. It's just kind of the next uh logical evolution for an, an industry that's always trying to be very forward thinking and uh, very efficient. So.
0: Well, wow. well, electronic trading had quite a massive impact. So, yeah. was, so it's a trading it the same. Exactly. So, so the impact is going to be even bigger. Then it sounds like we're going through a great period of transformation. Indeed we are. Yeah. So thank you very much for your time. I appreciate
1: it. You bet, Shani. Thanks so much.